Hey, Crispin here, North Shore Vineyard Church audio podcast. Today on the podcast, we have audio from our weekend service on Sunday, September 5th, right in the heart of downtown Covington. And this is part four of a series we've been on in the past few weeks entitled Prayer. Today we're going to be looking at prayer in in more of your daily life as, as your connection to God and how that connection can help determine the trajectory that you're on. So this is kind of a spiritual aligning of the tires going on in this message. So hope you'll find this helpful. And also starting Tuesday for the rest of the week on our devotions on NorthShoreVineyard.org, we'll have some reflections very much tied into the talk today, uh, ways of praying that you might find helpful in your everyday life to help keep your life spiritually aligned. So check that out, NorthShoreVineyard.org. Thanks for listening. Now let's head to the service. I was going to show a clip this morning, but I'll just reenact it for you with an interpretive dance. That's a good way to, that'll solve our our overcrowding problem. (laughs) There might be people who show up just to see that, who knows. Uh, January 15th, 2009 is, is a day that will forever go down in the history of commercial aviation. If you recall... There was a, a plane, I, I believe it was a U.S. Airways plane, piloted by a guy by the name of Captain Sully Sullenberger. You remember this story? And it was affectionately referred to as the Miracle on the Hudson. Do we have a, a, a nice shot of that? Yeah. Remember this? Um, and Captain Sullenberger was piloting this, this commercial craft. They had just left LaGuardia inf- uh, Airport in New York. And shortly after takeoff, just like about a minute into it, they hit a flock of geese and uh, lost both of their engines, basically. Both of the engines on the plane just were, were messed up. And in that moment, Solenberger had to make a decision. Uh, I was going to play you the tapes this morning, but it's pretty amazing listening to real time what he's, he's uh, facing. And you can actually pull this up on Google. They have a kind of an interactive thing. But... You can hear he's, he's got about one minute to figure out what he's going to do with this jet airliner. And they're saying, well, do you want us to open up a strip at this airport over here? He's like, ah, we're going for the Hudson. And you can tell the, the, the what do you call those, air traffic control person is like, what? Okay, we'll open up a, another thing. He's like, I can't do it. We're going for the Hudson. And you can tell, like, the con- air traffic controller just doesn't get what he's about to do. And finally, uh, Sullenberger just hangs up because he's got to focus on landing this plane on water. And he pulls off one of the most amazing landings, an emergency landing on the Hudson River. That in itself would be amazing, but, but what's even more amazing than that is no person in that plane died. I mean, there's people who try crash landing planes, but it usually doesn't work out too well for a good chunk of the people. All these people, as you can see, within a few moments of landing, they're all out on the wings of the plane, and they were rescued by fairies. And if you look up this story, you'll find that it's referred to as the miracle on the Hudson. And while, let's get the picture of Sullenberger up here, Captain Sully. He just looks like a captain. Uh... While people refer to this as 
as a miracle, I would say that yes, this guy skillfully landed a plane. He did things under pressure that were just amazing. And what he did was, was appeared miraculous. But honestly, I don't think what happened that day was a miracle at all. I think it goes back to the character of this guy. It wasn't just, you know, we, when we refer to a miracle, that, that's usually when God has to intervene and do something that, that you know, like, God, show up. And, and I believe miracles happen. But I believe what happened that day, the media was, it's a miracle that all these people, no, it's not a miracle. This guy took his life seriously <laughs> for years and years and years. In that moment, you know, when you were faced with a crisis, how many times do you find yourself, you know, looking for uh, kind of a manual on how do I deal with this crisis in my life? <laughs> Reality is, he couldn't pull out the idiot's guide to landing a plane <laughs> in that one minute he had. Either he had what it took in his character, in his heart, because of the way that he had lived those many 30, 40 years of flying planes before that, or he didn't. And honestly, there's quite a few pilots who don't have that. This story was so amazing because most pilots who try to land a plane on the water, it doesn't work out so well. Solenberger acted exactly as you would expect he would act because he had taken his career flying planes so seriously. If you had talked to people prior to this event happening and asked them about Solenberger, say, you know, what's that guy like? They say, they probably would have said, he's a hard worker who takes his job seriously, and he does it with excellence. All that paid off for these people. Um, I quoted a book last week from a guy, Malcolm Gladwell, and I guess I'm on a Malcolm Gladwell kick because uh, I'm going to quote another book. Well, I'm not really going to quote, but uh, he wrote another book after the book, well, before the book that I quoted last week called Blink. Anybody ever read this book? All right, good. A, little, a few more people have read this one. But uh, Gladwell, in this book, he talks about a, a research psychologist up at the University of Washington, I believe, who has developed a way of analyzing marriages. And he can analyze a 15-minute video of a couple. And he can determine with 90% accuracy whether this couple will be married in 15 years. I mean, 95, 90%, if you give him an hour-long video of two couples talking, he can determine with 95% accuracy if this couple is going to be married. Now, the way that they do this is, is, a, is something he refers to as thin slicing. And basically, the idea is that you can tell a lot about people by taking a small slice of their life and looking at it. So uh, what may seem like just a random conversation, 15 minutes long, of a couple discussing some point of contention in their life uh, shows great clues. You know, you, you, you're probably familiar with polygraph tests, lie detector tests. Basically, your body will tell on you if you're telling a lie. If they hook up all these electrodes to you and hook you up to this machine, unless you've like really practiced at it. I mean, there's some people who can beat the machine. But your body will tell on you if you tell a lie. Well, in the same way, they hook people up to these electrodes and they analyze their heart rate and their, their facial expressions. Thank you. 
I'm looking at some of y'all, and you have no expression. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Face, what is that? <laughs> uh, facial expressions, body language, tone of the voice, and they measure it for 20 different indicators, and they go through this video frame by frame. And once they go through this frame by frame, they've got like, you know, 1,800 little frames, and they, they uh, feed this stuff into a computer, and out comes the probability that this couple will be married. Well, what they found is, and, and they can do this with a 15-minute slice of video and determine 90%, but they can even get down to a three-minute video of a couple talking, and they can find that even in a three-minute conversation between a husband and his wife, there will be indications of where their marriage is. He said that there was something that they, they found, that if you find these things popping up in a marriage, either defensiveness, stonewalling, criticism, or contempt, if you find those popping up frequently in a 15-minute conversation between a man and his wife, chances are there's some trouble there. The worst of them is contempt, because unlike just being critical of someone, contempt is looking down on someone. I'm better than you. I'm on the moral high ground here, and you are wrong. He said when you have contempt in a marriage, it's almost a sure sign that that marriage is uh, headed for a divergence. Now, I could draw, if I had a chalkboard up here, I I could draw two lines that to you would seem uh, just about parallel. And these two lines, if I, if I could get my hands to move, these two lines, imagine two lines that are just slightly off from one another. In this room, they may appear to be just about parallel. But if we walk down two, if we take these two lines, two blocks from here, how would those lines look? They'd be way apart. See, what this research scientist was finding is that though a couple may appear to be very close, If the trajectory is off just a little bit, you take that out 10, 12, 15 years, and it's separation. If they don't realign themselves, if they don't deal with the issues of contempt and criticism and stonewalling and defensiveness, if the trajectory is off a little bit, they're headed for separation. C.S. Lewis, one of my favorite books that he wrote, is called... The Great Divorce. And I'm not going to ask anybody else how... Has anybody read this one? I just said I wouldn't. Okay. Floyd, Floyd, he's read a lot. Great Divorce is a, is a fascinating book that C.S. Lewis wrote. And he kind of... It's a fictional work of just kind of as he ponders the afterlife. And basically what C.S. Lewis brings up is the idea that, that the afterlife, heaven and hell, is really just the continuation of the trajectory that we've been on our whole lives. So if you've been on a trajectory that has been basically determined by bitterness and hate and contempt, then it continues on in afterlife. And C.S. Lewis, I, I love this picture of hell that he gives. Uh, he, he sees hell as this endless subdivision with houses going on in every direction, houses that are mostly vacant, <laughs> because he said people in hell can't get along with each other. <laughs> And basically, they keep moving further and further apart. And the longer they're there, the less, the less that they resemble themselves at all. Their lives are so consumed with the things that they were following in this world. They, they follow a trajectory that ultimately leads them to complete separation from God, from others. And even, you know, C.S. Lewis's thing is, even when these folks, that they, 
in this work, he says, you know, even when they're offered heaven in the afterlife, they've got too much pride, too much bitterness, too much resentment and contempt to receive the gift. It's changed them on the inside. I, I, I give a couple of examples from, the, you know, Blink and, and the Great Divorce and Captain Sullivan to, to say that what we do on a regular basis has a lot to do with where we're going. I, I showed, a, let's get the slide up here of Bounded Set. A, a few weeks ago, uh, we did a series, and I said, you know, this is the way that most people tend to view church. This is a term from mathematics, I believe. Um, but the idea is the most important thing with church is getting in the club. And once you get in the club, then you're cool, right? So getting in the club may be t- taking a membership class. It may be praying a prayer. But once you get in, you're identified with this group, and you're identified by this boundary. You're either in or out. The problem is with that kind of thinking is that it's very easy to get complacent with your spiritual walk. I know people that have been showing up steady to church for 30 or 40 years, and they haven't grown in their spiritual walk with God in at least 30 of those years. You know, they they got in the club, they're showing up, they're going through religious rituals, they may sing and worship, they may read their Bible, but they're basically stagnant. I proposed a better way of looking at this is centered set. Centered set, we take the boundary all away, and now the, the most important thing is not how many times you show up to church a week or how many times you read your Bible, but are you headed towards Jesus and his purposes? Is that the trajectory of your life? Now, under this kind of understanding, it starts becoming clear that, dude, this matters not just 10 years ago when I came to a revival and I went up you know, to, to receive Jesus. No, it matters now. Where is my life heading right now? Am I heading towards God and his purposes? Or am I drifting like this person here? The goal of faith, the goal of our faith in Christ is not destination, but transformation. If you look at, if you look at uh, the, the words of Jesus... I mean, ultimately, yeah, God wants us to, to live in the afterlife in his kingdom. Yeah, I'll give that to you. But ultimately, Jesus didn't talk a whole lot about what we do in the hereafter. He talked a whole heck of a lot about what we do in the here and now, the way that we treat one another, the way that we worship God, the way that we live lives that are reflective of that. And that's what I want to kind of look at today. Romans 12, 1 through 2, the Apostle Paul writes this. He said, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is. His good, pleasing, and perfect will. Paul, in these verses, is talking about transformation. He's basically saying, you can live in a way that is where the world is 
putting its own mold on you. You ever lived that way before in your life and you're just kind of uh, molded by everything around you? And Paul says, you can live that way, but but don't. (laughs) Don't be conformed to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. See, we can live in such a way where we let what society says, what the culture says, what Fox News or MSNBC says, we can live based on what folks on talk radio are saying or what politicians are saying. We can conform to that pattern or we can be transformed by letting God renew our minds, changing us on the inside. See, ultimately, I shared that, that story of, of Solenberger because he did not take his job flippantly. He wasn't laid back about what he did. He took it very seriously. And because of that, when the moment arose that somebody needed a hero, he could do it without thinking about it, without hesitation. And I believe that that's exactly what God wants for you and I. That when there's a crisis in your family, that you're not looking for the idiot's guide on how to deal with a crisis in your family. When there is strife and contention going on you can be a peacemaker when there are people that that are spouting hate and contempt you can come in with the presence of peace and love not because you're having to figure it out in the last moment i think that's the way we do it often i mean did anybody cram for test a whole lot when you're in college or high school yeah some of you are lying i know that was my favorite way to deal with things. I would just kind of, what's that? <laughs> yeah. That was, my, that was my default mode of dealing with things in high school. You know, I'd kind of joke around in class, and then all of a sudden it comes time for that semester final exam, and I'm just like driving myself miserable trying to get something that I didn't work into my everyday life. We tend to take that same mentality when it comes to the spiritual life, and when we face a crisis, something where we need to not only know the answer, but be the answer, we're trying to cram. And I don't think that's what God wants. He wants people who are transformed, whose minds have been renewed, who've, who've got the character of Christ in their very life. There's a word that I've been dying to use in a weekend message, and, and I can predict with about 95% accuracy that if you use this word in Scrabble, you will probably win. The word for the day, kids, is neuroplasticity. Yeah, bless you. <laughs> Neuroplasticity is, is, a, is a term re- referring to the ability of one's mind to be molded. And it's, it's a term that's, that neurologists are starting to, to use a whole lot. See, up until recently, ne- neurologists thought that, that the mind was basically fully developed by the time you hit about 12 or 13. And uh, they realized that... In, in the last 10 years, that your mind really isn't fully developed till you hit about 25. So those of you with teenagers, your teenagers are talking back to you, say, dude, your, your mind's not even fully formed yet, so <laughs> come back in another 10 years. 
They, they found that the, that the human brain, it, it takes 25 years just to kind of solidify. And the old way of thinking was that once your brain kind of is fully formed, that everything is hardwired. That, that's it. You know, it's kind of all the connections are, are, are solidified. But what they've realized is this idea of neuroplasticity. I said that quickly, too. Uh, neuroplasticity means that, that even though things, connections are made, there are still a lot of ways your own, your, your brain, your neural pathways, that your mind can actually be molded. And this is good news because this means that anything that you do repetitively gets easier. And this is bad news because it means that anything that you do repetitively gets easier. Did y'all catch that? <laughs> the good news is that anything we do over and over gets easier. This is why when I play and sing guitar, I'm not really thinking much about what I'm doing. I mean, I'm playing, I'm singing. Now, that wasn't always the case. I hear that we got that. Would you mind turning off that vent in the first bathroom? It, it has a broken motor, and it's just driving me crazy, even though none of y'all are paying attention. I'm sorry. Uh, <laughs> where was I? Oh, yeah, playing and singing the guitar. I first started playing guitar when I was about 20 years old, and I'd been playing the piano before that, but, boy, when I started playing the guitar, man, it was hard. And most people give up playing guitar in the first three months. We probably got several people in here. You picked up, the, you, you were like, I want to be a guitar player. And then three months into it, you're like, man, that hurts. That's hard. I can't even sing a song yet. I can't even do the, the opening measure of Freebird. I'm bummed. Forget this. But over time, as I began playing the guitar, it, it got easier. And then I could actually start singing on top of it. Now, for the first few years, it didn't sound that great. But eventually, I hit a point to where now, when I'm leading acoustic, you know, singing and playing acoustic guitar, man, I'm not even thinking much about that. Why is that? Because of neuroplasticity. It means these things that I've done repetitively over and over in my life, it, at some point, they just become easier. Now, think of if you've got a like a sandbox in your backyard, and you take a, a water hose. You put that water hose out there for three minutes. What's that water going to do? It's going to start kind of carving out some, some spaces and, and indentions. And if you go out there every day for three minutes and you let that water run, by the end of that week, you're going to have all these little channels where the water eroded things. The same thing goes for our minds. When you do something over and over again, it kind of... it. it doesn't really like carve out a place physically, but it makes it easier to do those things over and over again. Has anybody seen that clip from Drew Brees, sports science that was going around on the internet where he they put him up against some archers? Yeah. Drew Brees, they, they wanted to te see how accurate he was with his throw. So they said, we're going to put Drew Brees up against Olympic archers and see who can hit the target more often from 20 yards away. And what they found was... Drew Brees hit the target 10 times out of 10 times. Hit the bullseye from 20 yards away like crazy. The archers, on the other hand, Olympic archers, guys who compete at this stuff, could only hit it about 50% of the time. When they were interviewing Drew Brees afterwards, they said, Drew, how do you hit that thing 10 out of 10 times? He's like, I don't really think about it. He said, it's just muscle memory. 
What's muscle memory? It's, it's not like that your muscles remember things. It's that your mind, he has done that thing thousands of times. And that's pretty amazing. But what's more amazing is when Drew Brees does that, when he's got six big guys that are all over 250 pounds that all want to take him down, and he's moving and throwing that ball to a moving target 20 yards down, and it lands in the space of a bullseye on that person. The good news is that anything that you do over and over in your life actually changes your mind. It actually conforms your mind. The bad news is anything you do in your life over and over again conforms your mind. That's why sometimes we find ourselves with habits that we are they're just, you know, they call it ingrained. You know, it's, it's, it's ingrained. You can't stop. You know, there's things you don't want to do. Like, I, since I had some heart issues recently, I gave up um, wheat products and, and a lot of carbs. And... I tell you, not to be punny because it's ingrained behavior. I just had, I just thought of that this morning. I was like, that's, that's not really good. But um, (laughs) as I've been making this shift, it's been hard. It's hard imagining a reality that is void of wheat products. That's hard. Like, what do you eat with eggs in the morning? You know, I tried eating carrots and eggs. It's, yeah, it just doesn't do it for me. What about sandwiches without bread? That's not very fun either. And forget Italian food. Like, I've just, like, completely scratched it off the list. I'm just kind of bummed. It's like a reality without wheat. But you know what? I haven't died. There is an actual way to live without wheat products. Now, my mind is telling me that's not the case because I've spent 37 years of my life under a reality that exists with wheat products in it. And boy, I, I'm, you know, I'm about six weeks into this and, uh, and I still haven't got it licked. But you know, over time, if I stay on this trajectory, it'll get easier. It's already gotten a little bit easier. Over time, I, I adjust to that. Paul was not a neuroscientist, but Paul was talking about a way of living that actually changes our mind. See, we, we tend to think of the spiritual life as purely like kind of spiritual out here. Like you may say a prayer, you may read your Bible occasionally, but, but we need to understand that, that, that Paul, when he talks about the spiritual life, he talks about it as a discipline. It's something we've got to do continuously. Have you ever noticed that praying isn't easy? It's not natural, is it? Anybody? It's just me. Dang, I feel all alone up here. Praying, the spiritual life, it doesn't come naturally. And there are things where we've got to take out time in our life. We've got to take effort, and it feels weird. Just like playing the acoustic guitar. When you first start playing the acoustic guitar, it feels weird. There's some moments where you get inspired and you can take those two chords you've learned and you're like, wow, I found a two-chord song. Awesome. But really, for a long time, acoustic guitar playing is just doing rudimentary things that are no fun and you can hardly see any connection between those and what you're doing. It's kind of like, uh, remember the Karate Kid? I, I haven't seen the new version, but, you know... Mr. Miyagi has this guy out there. He's, you know, wax all my cars and and paint the fence. And he's like, what's all this got to do with anything? He finally finds after, you know, months of doing this stuff over and over, he's got what he needs when the moment calls for him. I don't know why I just pulled out Karate Kid. But um, so this is a talk, 
and I haven't mentioned anything about prayer today, but ultimately I wanted to lay that foundation because we've been covering different kinds of prayer. We talked last week about confessing our sins one to another and praying for one another that we would be healed. A couple of weeks before that, we talked about intercession, praying for the needs of others, lifting others up before Jesus. And those are all really necessary types of prayer. But this probably kind of prayer I want to talk about today is it's more your relationship with God. It's more of a, of a way of realizing what is the trajectory of my, my life. And I got to say, you know, growing up as, you know, my years as a Christian being a, a non-denominational kind of hanging around some charismatic churches and th- stuff, I never, I never came across this way of praying until recently. It's, it's, a, it's a way of praying that goes back 450 years to a guy by the name of St. Ignatius. Anybody heard of that dude before? If you haven't heard of St. Ignatius, you've heard of his universities. They're all over the place. Uh, Loyola, Xavier. St. Ignatius uh, was the guy who started the Jesuits. And the Jesuits, uh, that's what he looked like. That's his Facebook. I, I, I took that off his Facebook profile. <laughs> He had some other pictures with him and some other monks, but, you know, they were, they had beers in their hands. Now, um, <laughs> St. Ignatius, he started a religious order called the Jesuits. Now, I went most of my Christian experience, I, as I mentioned a, a couple of times here, like I have no grid for Catholicism. I didn't grow up around it at all. But uh, I, I stumbled across this stuff a few years ago. I found it immensely helpful in my own life. And I know some of you in here probably have Catholic baggage in a bad way, but uh, it, it's been a real refreshing thing to me. Ignatius, he started this religious order called the Jesuits, and he decided right off the bat that, that the Jesuits were going to be different from other orders of monks. See, the Benedictine monks that started coming out around, I think, about 1100 A.D., uh, Benedictine monks, their whole thing was we need to separate from society and start our own little uh, monastery where we can pray together and read the Bible together and we'll do these things together day in and day day out and we'll just stay away from the evils of the world. And a lot of religious orders have had that mindset. Ignatius said, no, your spirituality must be able to be practiced in a regular, ordinary world. Whether you're a stay-at-home mom or a doctor, or a businessman, or a salesman. No matter what you do, spirituality, it it doesn't need to be something that only monks can practice at a monastery, but it needs to be something that anybody can practice in their everyday life. And he came up with this way of praying that that I've found very uh, helpful in my own walk in the last few years called the prayer of examine. Has anybody heard of the prayer of examine before? Okay, great. I'm sure there's somebody in here, but... uh, the basic idea, is, as I put on your outline, this isn't so much what to pray, but, but a, 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 a helpful thing on how to pray. A couple of days ago, I had to put some new tires on the car. And after they put the tires on, they said, you want us to check out the alignment? I said, how much does that cost? They said, it's free. I was like, okay, great. They said, your car needs to be aligned. <laughs> That's free, right? No. That cost you another 80 bucks. Ah. So I, I went ahead and, and I figured, I guess it does no good to get new tires if you don't get the alignment fixed. And the same goes for our spiritual life. If your trajectory of your life is off a little bit, <laughs> if you're not continually adjusting 
the alignment of your life, you got to watch out because you will end up drifting away from God, drifting away from God's purposes. So the examine of consciousness, of conscience, is just a good way to, to continually come back to that. How am I doing with God? I put that on your outline. The, the, kind of the core issue of, of the, the prayer of examine is how do things stand between me and God? Where am I coming from? And where is my life in Christ growing? Reality is we can only answer these questions if we take some time to reflect. And I understand that, that most of us don't have a whole lot of time we set aside to reflect in your life. I would say one of the best ways to start praying this prayer is just at the end of your day. I'm not saying this has to take, take the place of your whole prayer life, but at the end of the day, and, and this, I would recommend this as your homework this week. You might want to try this two or three days this week. But at the end of the day, when everything's done, the kids are put to bed, and instead of watching reruns of Scrubs or, or whatever... Take 15 minutes to just sit down with God and look over your day. And so the way the, the way the prayer of examine works is you just sit down and say, God, I thank you for the good gifts you brought into my life today. And you just remember, I, I, I like to think of it as watching a movie in your mind. Just kind of look back over your day and start thinking of the things you were thankful for. Say, God, you know, I thank you for that conversation I had with my coworker. It was just kind of unexpected, that word of encouragement that someone sent to me. I thank you for the, the, the you know, the commute was good. Whatever. Just go through your day and just express thankfulness to God. But inevitably, if your day is like my day you'll probably come up against some things in that day that you're not so thankful for. Actually, you might bump into some things that day where you weren't really led by God's Spirit at all, or you weren't in an attitude of love and thankfulness, but rather you were kind of motivated by fear or insecurity or pride. So you go through this thing, and once you, once you stumble upon a couple of things that, that uh, were not necessarily pleasing to God, you go to the next step. You ask for clarity. When you come to something in your day that you're not thankful for, some negative attitude or sin you participated in, take this to God. Having thanked God for all the good gifts, ask God for one more gift to see clearly and hope how I'm growing more fully alive to God. In this moment, you're looking back on your day and saying, God, you know, I'm, I'm really thankful for all these things, but I, I noticed, I noticed when I was out there on the road today, somebody pulled out on, in front of me, and I just lost it. Like, I was angry. Like, it, it, it really ruined that next appointment that I had. What's up with that? <laughs> so, instead of just saying, God, forgive me for being angry, now we, we start to go, God, give me clarity on why something so little like that set me off today. Why did that happen? Why, why am I getting so shaken by somebody pulling out in front of me? You ask God for clarity. And then you examine. I carefully considered what my actions, omissions, thoughts, and desires tell me about my relationship with God, myself, and with others. As you start seeing some of these things in your life, you're going to see some good things, some bad things. But as you start, what does that tell me about where I am with God right now? What's that tell me about where I am with other people? What does that reveal to me? Next, you question, 
I patiently asked myself what my action or attitude meant. Did did it embody the love of God or fear, peace or anxiety? I got to tell you, praying this kind of way with God, it begins, God begins to show you some stuff. When I started doing this a few years back, I'm like, wow. All of a sudden, you're not just going through default actions and just letting the day happen to you. Now you're beginning to identify with God's help what's going on. What's really going on inside? Sometimes I find, you know, <laughs> a couple of weeks ago, I kind of lost it on one of my relatives. And it was my mom. <laughs> But it would have been anybody at that moment because I was just, I just, I wasn't having a good day. And, and, and uh, she calls and I, I just kind of, I didn't like lose it angrily, but I, I just like, ah, I'm just kind of, and she's like, oh, okay, uh, I'll call you back later, sweetie. Uh, <laughs> she called me back later, said she'd been praying. Um, but when I took these things to God, I realized there'd been a way that, I had begun thinking a few days before that. And it was just now starting to become obvious. I realized that there were some situations that I was beginning to get very anxious about. And I was beginning to think of these things. The trajectory of my life, that my my spiritual life was starting to veer off to the right a little bit. I I was starting to to head away from God's plans. And so I I, I invited God in. I said, God, what's going on here? And God began to illuminate those things and show me, hey, this is where you kind of, it, it, it happened, it didn't just happen Monday, it actually started happening Thursday or Wednesday, <laughs> the preceding week. You, see, you remember that? Finally, we close. You close the prayer. Finally, I determined to keep my spirit filled with gratitude and to take steps to get rid of mindsets that stand between me and my creator. Now, I want to tell you one thing here. Uh, I know many people will say you can't really change yourself, and I agree. But God won't change you. God won't violate (laughs) your will either. (laughs) It is God. It takes God to change you, but it's our openness to God. It's our willingness to partner with God and say, God, I invite your work in my life. This thing in my life is obstinate. It's standing up against you. It's standing up against you in my marriage. It's standing, and and, and I invite you to help me deal with that. And I commit to whatever it takes this week to to, to live mindful of that. So, sometimes you'll dig a little bit, and it'll become clear. There's other times where it may take a little bit more digging. Digging. You may say, I've noticed I've become very dissatisfied in my work, or I'm shaking off an old resentment to something my spouse did, or a coworker. Sometimes it takes a little digging. Sometimes it emerges as a whole climate that you've been living under. And, and when those times, I love those times when you just kind of see like, wow, dude, I've been, I've, been in a, I've been in a fog for weeks. God brings you clarity. You just close by saying, thanks, God. Thanks for showing me this. And I commit to live a different way. So I just want to, I just want to close by saying, let's let's try this this week. You know, online on our website, I'm pretty good about posting devotionals 
Monday through Friday. Sometimes I miss a couple of days this week. I'd miss two days. Forgive me. Uh, but I, I, I post these little reflections online. Honestly, you know, you know, somebody was asking me, well, where do you come up with these things? And I was like, you know, I, I just read the Bible and put them up there with some questions. But honestly, I experienced a lot of these things like I'm putting up online just from kind of the prayer of examine, Jesuit it's, you know, some of their approach to prayer. It's, it's reflective reading. It's, it's looking at the scripture and asking questions and, and, and challenging yourself on what you've read. This week, I'll be putting up some more, but I, I just encourage you, you may want to start the day with one of the reflections in the morning on scripture and then close out your day at the end of the day with this. What you will find, a lot of stuff may not change in the first week. A lot of stuff may not even change in the first month. But bit by bit, just like playing the acoustic guitar or just like throwing a football or just like eating wheat, (laughs) bit by bit, it becomes normal. It becomes natural. Your mind begins to be renewed. You're experiencing transformation. And when a tragedy happens in your life, when there is a crisis with a coworker at your office, when there's something that calls for someone to do something heroic, in that moment... You're not looking for, oh, wow, what kind of book may say something or who can I get to handle this? You can be the one who steps up with the Spirit of God in your life and say, here's what we need to do. I really believe that's what God wants for all of us. He wants us to be His touch, His hands, His very presence to the people around us. If we think it's only about getting in the circle and hanging out there until Jesus takes us home, then we are sorely missing on the very reasons that Jesus died. He wants us to experience this stuff in our life day to day. Why don't you guys stand with me? Lord, this morning... We invite your work, as the psalmist wrote, to search, our, search me, O Lord. Know my heart. Try me. Know my ways. See if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the everlasting. Lord, we ask that this morning. Lord, that you could reveal things in our lives, God. Lord, that the, the places that are crooked could be straightened out. Lord, where our minds have just been on autopilot, God, where, where we just spend our days just obsessed with the, the cares of the world or, or fretting about situations on our job or with our family, God, I pray that you would bless every person in here with the grace to step away for a few moments. Lord, even at the end of the day, to reflect on where you're at. God, give us the grace. God, changing, it doesn't come easy at all, Lord. And we just admit our our weakness in this. But we ask for your grace, for your transformation, Lord, that you would straighten out our hearts, our minds, God, that we could be the people that this community needs around. God, we could be your witnesses, not in head knowledge, but, but in the very substance of our heart. Lord, just help us to take this spiritual life seriously, even the disciplines of it, Lord. 
God, I just pray your blessing and your empowerment, Holy Spirit, to fill every heart in here in the days to come. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray these things. Amen.